Well, good morning. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Malachi, Malachi chapter 1, or just find Matthew and turn back one book and you'll find it. What we're going to do is, is we're going to pause our study in the Gospel of John for eight weeks, including this week, and we're going to talk about worship. We're going to look at worship in light of the prophet Malachi's word of the Lord. And so, just one verse today as we sort of introduce this book to ourselves and and begin our journey through Malachi. Let us stand for in honor of God's word this morning. Malachi chapter 1 verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Lord There's a lot in this first verse. There's a lot of history in this first verse. And so, Lord, help us, for we do not live in this time, and we do not know, some of us, the history of what has went on that got the people of the Lord to this point that they are at in Malachi. And so, God, help us build this bridge Help us see that worship was not only a problem for them. Worship is a problem for us. And so, Lord, we long to be true worshipers. We long to behold and believe. This morning, we long to remember and respond rightly to you, for you are the Lord of hosts. Receive our worship, Lord, even as we sit here in eager anticipation to hear your word. Bless us with understanding today that we may delight in you and you alone. And so live as joy-filled people in the presence of our Lord until you come. This is our prayer and our plea, Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Probably shouldn't admit that I've watched this program, but it's been a long time, and so it's true. This program used to be called Seinfeld. I think the reruns are probably still on somewhere. Anybody remember that program? Just a program about nothing, really, that you still watched it, right? There's, there's this one little chunky guy on there called George Costanza, balding guy. He's, Super lazy, just basically good for nothing, but that's his character, you know. There's a backstory to this, but he was working at a place, and the place decided to pay him to be off all summer long. So he called this the Summer of George. Going to have the Summer of George. What, he said, I'm just going to smell the ocean. I'm going to read a book. I'm going to travel, and on and on he went. You know what the Summer of George devolved into, don't you? Sitting on the couch, eating, being good for absolutely nothing. To some degree, brothers and sisters, both physically and spiritually, we oftentimes, if we are not careful, enter into our own little summer of Georges. You ever wondered why the church never starts anything in the winter or the summer? Because many people go in their own little summer of Georges a couple times a year. We, we can fall into this. 
even with our amazing history as Americans. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Have we ever studied the history to see what that cost the people who wrote those words? Instead, we've turned it into what? My life, my liberty, my pursuit of happily, the the inerrant worth of the self, the rights of the self. There are movements flooding this nation over that God right there, the right of the self. So we said, it's not just about them. Remember last week? The opposite of praise is what? Just to forget. Just to forget. That's why the Bible says a lot about remembering. Because we need to remember. There is nothing that will kill your worship worse than apathy. Worship, you see, just means worth-ship. There is, that is the greatest Worship killer. You see, you can be chronically overworked and still be spiritually lazy. How many hours you work a day is no indication of how much you worship your Lord. Could be as it was in my life, the God you serve. And so John's gospel tells us, teaches us to behold and believe. Malachi is going to teach us to remember and to respond. It's really just two parallel truths. Much is saying the same thing. So two truths I want us to see and two questions I want us to answer. Two truths. First truth, God made us for worship. God made us for worship. Isaiah 43, 21, it's not in your notes. Just write the reference down and listen. The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Do you you see it? The people who I formed for myself. Why? That they might declare my praise. God made us for worship. And if if it was a coin and you flip that coin over, what it would say on the other side of that coin is God made us for delight. Yes, yes, let's just say it. God made us for pleasure. You say, no, 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 no. It's not about pleasure. This is about duty. We need to think about this. This is why our worship has been affected. Duty flows out of delight. But delight does not necessarily flow out of duty. And you can trace this to our military and those who serve. To our police and those who protect. Duty flows out of delight. What exactly drives what they do? This is a book. It's it's pretty old. Sort of think my page is about to fall out of it. It's, it's reprinted in a black. It's out there in the bookstore. It's called Desiring God. If you've never read it, I'd put it on your book list. Here's what, he, here's what the author says. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attending with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. God made us for worship. And the other side of that inseparable coin is that He made us for delight. Do you see that? So without restoring both, the heart of worship is not restored. 
You cannot restore it with duty. You cannot restore it with guilt and shame. And this is why we need this message this morning. Before we go into a book of the Bible, where most preachers have only ever preached it to heap shame on their people for not giving. What we're going to learn is if your delight is right, giving takes care of itself. Two truths. We're made for worship. We're made for pleasure. How can we restore the heart of worship? It's the main idea today. The heart of worship is restored as we remember and respond faithfully to the Lord of hosts. And so there is another question that must be answered today and we'll get to it. And it's this. Is sincerity in worship alone enough? As long as I'm sincere, as God say, that's, that's good enough. You ever heard it said? Lord knows my heart. I don't love God's people. I don't gather with his people. But I love Jesus. He knows that. That's enough. Is that true? No. I bet you've heard this one. Out there evangelizing or talking to somebody in the work. It says, brother, me and the Lord, we got an agreement. Right? We, we got a deal. We made a deal. Can I just... Give everybody a news flash if it's not already there. God makes covenants. He does not make deals. He makes covenants. Malachi addresses people in a covenant. And he says, your inward motivation matters for worship, not just your outward response. They never missed a service. You ever met, anybody remember those perfect attendance pins? We had people used to turn in their envelopes and go to the beach just so they'd get a pen at the end of the year. Right? You can go to church and miss the whole forest for the trees. So we need to start with the foundation. We need to see the problem. And we need to look at the heart. The foundation of worship. The problem in worship. And the heart of worship. First, the foundation is covenant. You see, worship. This is important. For most of us don't have not even thought of a covenant beyond our own marriages. And sometimes we don't even consider marriage a covenant. It's not our language today. But listen, it is what worship flows through. We cannot understand the love of God, nor His ways if we don't understand covenant. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. There are three parties talked about in verse 1 in His covenant. The first is the Lord. You see, He is called in this book over and over and over the Lord of hosts. We need to see him. He's all over the page. You, you should, if, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, if you've got a digital Bible, you ought to just go through and highlight the Lord of hosts. You'll see us everywhere. Look at verse 11. Just one illustration. Malachi 1.11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is used 285 times in the Old Testament, but is concentrated in the prophets as they encourage and confront the covenant people of God. The Lord of hosts communicated to something. It was Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of armies, this emphasized the Lord's God's role as a warrior with His people. 
He was the one that would bring literally heaven and earth to bear on behalf of his covenant people. Turn with me to Exodus 15. You remember this. The people are crossed the Red Sea. When you read this, you need to think of the, the, the Pharaoh's armies floating in the water. The ocean had covered them up. Exodus 15 verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and, the, and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This is the Lord of hosts. The member of a covenant that he made. And there has been historically from God's people a response to the Lord of hosts. A response. I'm, I'm reading through 1 Samuel now. And I just read this this past week. 1 Samuel 1.3 says this. Now this man used to go up year by year from the city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. That's who they were worshiping. Remember, we said this in John chapter, 10, um, chapter 7, that, uh, that the people would pilgrim to worship the Lord. Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booze. This is an important sentence in this study. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So we need to understand this as children of God. We come to the cross to be saved empty-handed. But when God saves you, you will never be empty-handed again. You did not come to worship today empty-handed. The Lord paid for your sin and he has brought you peace. And the praise and the gratefulness that, that swells up in your heart causes you to bring something when you come into the presence of God. Remember Luke 2.41? Where did the parents of our Lord go? Verse 41 says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Why? To worship the Lord of hosts. He is the primary member of this covenant, but there is a people of God. Do you see them? To Israel. The word of the Lord to Israel. This is the remnant who returned from exile in Babylon. So let's briefly just remember the history. In 931, Solomon David's son dies. And as a result, the kingdom is split. Israel and Judah. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. But if you remember, Israel's idolatry was worse. Their kings more wicked. And though the prophets warned, they would not repent. And in 722 B.C., the word of the Lord was fulfilled, and the Assyrians evaded Israel and took over the northern kingdom. And there they reigned until 612 B.C., when the Babylonians invaded and took over the Assyrians and got their land. But the Babylonians wasn't content with the northern kingdom. They took the southern kingdom too, and as a result, sent the people of the Lord into exile. And this was the people of the Lord's situation until 538 when Persia takes over. 
And the Persian Empire begins to allow the people of God to go back to their land. To rebuild the walls. Remember Nehemiah. To restore the worship. The rebuild the temple. This is the time frame of Malachi. In other words, Malachi is a contemporary of Nehemiah and Ezra. During not only the rebuilding of the walls, but the rebuilding of the temple. Here was the problem. Though the temple was rebuilt, though there was safety and there was a place, yet true worship had not been restored. They were still struggling with the same things that took them into captivity to start with. Therefore, God sends Malachi with a message. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. You see, Malachi is the, uh, he is the covenant mediator, the prophet that was sent. Malachi means my messenger. Some people think Malachi is not even his name. It was simply his title. He was the messenger of the Lord. In other words, the messenger is not the point. The message is. You see the word oracle? This means a weighty pronouncement. What he is about to do, what we are going to do, is look through six disputes that God is going to wage against his people. His covenant people. You see, there is a covenant. There was a covenant made, and there was covenant stipulations. And those covenants not being kept. So he sends the covenant mediator to lay out a court case, a legal case, to say, here is the covenant, and here are your actions. You remember, there would be no people of God without covenant. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? God chose a people. Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And he, it was unconditional. He said, I, you're my people and I'm going to bless you. These would be his kingdom people. But the Mosaic covenant comes in. Why? To show these people how they must live. How they must live in light of who their covenant God is. There were stipulations to that. And so this is important when we start this. If you've been in the Wednesday night class, this will be very familiar to you. We are standing on one bank and they are on another. They are on the bank of the Mosaic Covenant that has stipulations. We stand on the bank of the New Covenant, a better covenant. A covenant that Ezekiel 36 says He would replace our very nature and give us a nature that beats for Him. And so there is a wide stream between these two banks. And we must build the bridge to understand the situation in their covenant and our situation in ours. But here's the reality on both sides of the river. We all have a worship problem. They had it then, and we have it now. So what is the problem? What is the problem in worship? And how can we restore it? Our main idea says this. This is how we restore it. It's restored as we remember and respond faithfully to the Lord of hosts. The Lord that made the... Abrahamic covenant and that made the Mosaic covenant is the same one that made a new covenant with you. He is the Lord of hosts. He has not changed. And see, here's the problem. Would the people, would Nehemiah have built the wall if he did not realize there was a wall that needed to be rebuilt? <laughs> you see, you've got to realize before you, you say, I've got to do something, Lord. Well, what, how do I fix this problem? We got to realize there's a problem, right? There's a wall that's been torn down to say that 
that we must restore the heart of worship is to say there is something that is broken. There is something that is damaged. What's the problem? The problem is the preeminence of the self. There's a book I would highly recommend it. It's called Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. Here he gives us an observation from a man called, from France called Alexis de Tocqueville. I think I got that right. I really tried and pronounced that over and over to get his name right. And he's not alive anymore to, to correct me. Here was his observations. He came to America and said, he noted a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. Americans believed that prosperity could quench their yearning for happiness, but such a joy is illusory. Because de Tocqueville added, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. This strange melancholy manifests itself in many ways, but always leads to the same despair of not finding what is sought. This is the problem, isn't it? The preeminence of the self. And the more we, we lift ourselves up, the more we say, I just need to have better self-esteem. I just have to need to have more me time. The more me you, we put on the throne. It is the preeminence of the self. So we need to realize this this morning. Whether you're here or listening to us online, the problem is in worship is not buildings. The problem is not the stained glass or the lack of stained glass. The problem is not pews or no pews or traditional music or contemporary music or whatever the thing is in any particular generation. The problem is we are not responding to the Lord of hosts the way He commands to be responded. Is it not the Lord who said, if you would follow me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. You see, there is a danger in the preeminence of self. And it leads to that question we asked before. Is sincerity and worship enough? That's, that's what the preeminent self says, isn't it? Hey, sincerity counts. Sincerity is the chief virtue of this age. For we hear it all the time. You must first be sincere to yourself. Is sincerity a good thing? Absolutely, right? You don't have a relationship without sincerity. You've got to have honesty. You've got to have transparency. You've got to have truthfulness or there is no relationship. But listen, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Can I sincerely hate my spouse? <laughs> yeah. Truthfully, honestly, maybe even verbally. I'm living with you, but I hate you. Can I be sincerely lazy? You're talking about George Costanza and I was like, was he sincere? Yeah. This is going to be the summer of me. I got to be true to me. I got to find myself, right? How many of us have said that? Most all of us. You can, listen, you can be sincere and ruin your children with unbiblical advice given by the world. You can bow up to the wrong throne and be sincere in it. We can, in other words, the point is you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. We can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Mark Dever says it this way, sincerity is necessary, but it is not sufficient. It is not sufficient. 
We can be authentic and be consumed with ourselves. We can be authentic and embrace a privatized faith that the Bible does not mention nor embrace. What happened then? What happened to worship? You see, worship is lost. The walls of worship torn down when it becomes about my preferences, my comfort, my cup being filled, my needs being met. Because as soon as that rises to the surface, the honor of our Lord devolves. It is me for the joy set before me, lining my life up in line with Him, the God that I fear, the God that I love, the God I delight in, and the God that I honor. This is true. It's a quote. When religion is practiced for personal gain, it can cause great harm. I would go on to say, just read your history. Anytime people embraced even the name of Christ for their own personal gain, they would butcher people in the name of Jesus and say they did it for the sake of worship. Religion for personal gain is dangerous. So... Got a book here that we're going to be going through in our growth groups. It's called Crazy Busy. In order to try to help us remove some of the obstacles in our life, it's available in the lobby. I would, we're going to start looking at that starting next week. Here's a quote. Kevin DeYoung's the author. We are here and there and everywhere. We are distracted. We are preoccupied. We can't focus on the task in front of us. We don't follow through. We don't keep our commitments. We are so busy with a million pursuits that we don't even notice that the most important things are slipping away. We're too busy. And listen, if if you can't honestly say that there is at least seasons in your life when that's true of you, then that's the problem in restoring the heart of worship. That we have to first have an honest view of ourselves. Worship is restored when we recover the heart of worship. So what is the heart of worship? Well, that's going to be the next reason for the next seven weeks. Next seven weeks, this is what we're going to look at. It's in your notes. You, you know the titles of the sermons coming up, right? Just look under the heart of worship in your notes. Here's what we're going to look at beginning next week. In chapter 1, verses 2 to 5, we're going to remember that in order to restore the heart of worship, we must remember the love of Jesus Christ. We need to remember that God loves you and you do not deserve it. And He has demonstrated it. He demonstrated it to them and He has demonstrated it to us. To restore the heart of worship, we need to prioritize His honor above all things. We're going to see that in verse 6 of chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 9. God deserves honor and so He calls His people on the carpet and says this, if you're a leader here, you need to listen. Restoring the heart of worship begins with you. That's his point. Honor begins with his leaders. What's going to amaze us, I hope, as you see, is the people do not sit there mute. They ask questions. You know what they keep asking? What? (laughs) He says something, what? I'm coming to church, right? I come home every night. I mean, I didn't go to the bar or anything on the way home. What? You know, that's just... That's the constant question, even to the very end of the disputes. To restore the heart of worship, we must prioritize His honor. 
We must also restore our faithfulness and remove our idolatry. God will say this, I am faithful and you are not. How do I know you're not faithful? You know what he does? You know what he's going to put his finger on? The most intimate relationship in your life. That's what he's going to do. How do I know you're not faithful to me? Look at the person that I have called you to be most intimately faithful and see if you're living in purity and faithfulness to them. Because if you're not, you're not living in purity and faithfulness to me. How do we restore the heart of worship? Restore our faithfulness and remove our idolatry. Listen, we remove our idolatry even if they have names. We must put God's faithfulness first. We must promote His justice. That's going to be in chapter 2, 17 to verse 3, 5. God is just. Here's what He's going to say. God is just and you're not. You know what they're going to say? You know what the people of the Lord's going to say to Him? No, no, no. It's you're not fair, God. I mean, I come to church and I pay my tithes and life's still hard. I thought I was supposed to be having the blessed life. We need to promote His justice. And then, chapter 3, verses 6 to 12, here's what he's going to teach us. To restore the heart of worship, we must embrace radical generosity. We must embrace radical generosity. But you see, radical generosity is fueled by something. It's fueled by a grateful heart. So if we're not seeing generosity in our own life or in our own church, we need to first look inward at the gratefulness of our own heart. He's going to say in that chapter, God deserves our first and our best, and we have not only robbed God, but we have scorned His anointed by starving them. Next, we need to pursue the fear of the Lord in all of life. That's going to take us into chapter 4. God is holy. In other words, He's saying, you are treating me, you are speaking to me flippantly and arrogantly. And I am the Lord of hosts. So he's going to contrast those who fear him and those who do not. And he closes up the book, and we know this because we've been studying the Gospel of John, by, by saying we must prepare for his imminent return. He's saying the day of, is coming, and I'm going to send a messenger ahead. And so when he comes, you're going to know the day of the Lord is coming. We know that was John the Baptist. So what today? So what today? Two things. The call to worship is a call to war. I'm not talking about something that's going to be easy in my life or yours or ours collectively. The call to worship is a call to war. It is to wage war on idolatry in our life because that idolatry is preventing me from making the Lord preeminent and it is affecting my own delight. We are settling for something less than the best. This is about a war of what is ultimately worthy and what is ultimately delightful. Again, quoting Timothy Keller in his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods. Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems, its rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. 
What are the gods of beauty, power, and money, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and, and in our societies? We may, we may not physically kneel before the statue of Epaphrodite, but young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. He goes on to say the key to change and even self-understanding is to identify the idols of the heart. One counselor recommends when we find idols that we do this, what Jesus called us to do, radical amputation. Radical amputation. When you see it, we must cut it off. <laughs> Lest it destroy us and those that we love. Idolatry kills. It robs us of the Lord's worship and our joy. The call to worship, you see, is not just a call to stop it. It is a call to delight. A call to worship is a call to delight. There is not just a danger to avoid. There's a delight to pursue. And I think this has been missing in our preaching and our teaching. Desiring God, Piper says it this way, God is not worshipped where He is not treasured and enjoyed. In other words, if you're not enjoying God, you're not worshiping Him. Even though you might be doing what is obligatory in your life. You see, the cross is not given to us for that purpose. The cross was never given to you to make you more busy. The cross was never given to you to put a burden on you, but to take a burden from you. That's the purpose of the cross. It is to point us to who should be our treasure and our delight. That's why we remember it every week. Because we need to remember the Lord is our treasure and our joy. And He demonstrated it when He went to the cross. Quoting from this book, Crazy Busy, we all have a cross to carry. But it's a cross that kills our sin. It smashes our idols and it teaches us the folly of self-reliance. It is a cross that says, I'll do anything to follow Jesus. Not a cross that says, I have to do everything for Jesus. You see the difference? We must, brothers and sisters, today. This is my simple application point. We must take time today to rest. To read. To meditate. To pray. To be thankful. Listen. Some of you need, need to quit getting on all these blogs that argue about everything and simply enjoy serving somebody just for the joy of it. He made us for that, brothers and sisters. How will we know? How will the world know that we love them if we don't wash their feet? And so, let us enjoy the Lord this morning. Let us turn to Psalms 27. Personally, I, I, you may say, I think you go to this passage before. I go to this verse a lot. There was some big events in, in my life. And those big events, you remember the passages that took you through, don't you? 
Psalms 27.4 was one of those for me. I just don't know any better verse to help us delight in the Lord at the end of a message. Psalms 27.4 One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. You see? What is ultimate? One thing. One thing. It is the one thing that He seeks for. Do you see the words? That will I seek. That word means to search and discover. That, that one thing I will dwell. That means to live in. It means to inhabit. That will our gaze upon. You know what the word gaze means? It's what I do to my wife. Look at her with delight. It means to behold. Gaze upon that one thing. When's the last time you stopped and gazed? To inquire. You know what that means? It means to meditate. When they would bring a sacrifice in... Before you dare took a sacrifice in and offered it to the Lord, you would inquire it. It means you would inspect it. You would look it over, all over. Look at its teeth. Look and make sure there was no wounds. You would roll it over on its, on its back and inspect it. This is one thing we're to meditate on. Do you see the word beauty? The beauty of the Lord. You know what that word simply means? Anything that gives pleasure to the senses. You see, this is not some kind of simply mystical thing up in the cloud that we use Christian cliches and go about our way. This is something that we experience. We are supposed to sit and seek and dwell and gaze and meditate and not move. Until we see the beauty, the, the New Living Translation calls this perfections. To dwell, to think, to be brought and smitten by the beauty of the Lord by thinking about all of His perfections. And so now, let us go to our Lord in prayer. And let us gaze together on the perfections of Jesus Christ. So pray with me. Father that's in heaven who has sent us His Son, Lord, we long to hear at the close where we gather ourselves back up for worship and before we come to the tables that You commanded us to, to remember. Lord, would You allow us the pleasure of remembering the perfections of Jesus Christ. Your Son and our brother our Savior and our friend. Lord, we remember the perfections of His deity. One with and equal to God, Lord. We remember the perfections of His holiness. Lord, we remember the perfections of His creative work that You willed and He spoke. We remember, Lord, the perfections of His transcendence, Lord. He is not like us. And yet, Lord, we remember the perfections of His eminence. He came to us and even dwells in us, Lord. 
we remember the perfections of His humanity. He took on a nature like ours yet without sin. Lord, we remember the perfections of His life. He never sinned. God, we remember it. We would not be saved without it. We remember the perfections of His obedience. He never had a bad motive or an impure thought. Never disobeyed His parents. We remember the perfections of His suffering. He went to the cross. He was scorned for us. He died for us. We remember the perfections of His love. He proved it on the cross. We remember the perfection of His humility. Served even those who hated Him and died for sinners like me. We remember the perfection of His compassion. How He loved those who were oppressed. Especially those in the slavery of sin. Lord, we remember the perfections of His death. He died, God. We remember that today. He died. We remember the perfections of His forgiveness for His atoning sacrifice and at the plan of adoption that brought us into the family of God. We remember today the perfections of the new covenant. Better than the old. Unconditional. Irrevocable. We remember the perfections of His resurrection. Who guarantees one day we will be raised to be with Him forever. We remember the perfection of His bodily ascension who walked up to the gates of heaven and the gates slung open wide and He ascended to the throne where He sits today. We remember the perfection of the Holy Spirit being sent to us. The perfection, Lord, we remember of all of His blood-brought promises whereby we live and breathe and have our being. And we remember, Lord, though it is still in our future, the perfection of Your visible Return where your son will come. We remember the perfection that is talked about in the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. We remember one day we will worship you perfectly. Oh God, we long for that day that we will not sin against you anymore and we will delight with you and all those who have went on before us together. And now, Lord, lead us to the cross. Lead us to the cross, Lord. As we remember the body and blood of your Son, lead us to the cross. That place where your love was put on visible to play, display for all to see. And then, Lord, let us live Displaying the nature of that cross. Receive our worship, Lord. For you deserve it, and we long to give it. In Jesus' name.